Hello, welcome to another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast, hosted by your very own Galaxy Electrians, Augustus, and I am Jacqueline. So welcome in. This is our final episode of 2022, if you can believe it. And we put some extra special cosmic sauce into this episode for you because it's about something we care an extra lot about. Bibi and Louis Marin, who composed the score for our favorite sci-fi movie. So there's a lot of threads to cover here. This episode has two parts. The first part is going to be what you're used to. Me and Augustus having a conversation live in our Cosmic Tape Music Club Facebook group. We've edited it down, obviously. So it's just the good stuff, just the stuff you need to know, and the questions that we posed at the time so that we can go into part two. Part two is going to be a conversation with the Todd Barton, someone we have had the absolute pleasure of getting to know, uh, mostly because of our love for BB and Louis Barron and Bukla and Forbidden Planet. Those are a lot of really specific things to have in common with someone, so we feel really honored that we were able to sync up a couple weeks ago and have this conversation because it answers all the questions from part one. Oh, and one more thing. I already know that you're going to hear a bunch of names that are mispronounced in this episode. So just prepare yourself. <laughs> just blanket statement. Don't trust how we're pronouncing any of these names. We already know. Okay. All right. Here we go. Today we are talking about... Bibi and Louis Barron. Uh, I was looking through the group to see if anyone had posted about them, and it was only us who had done it so far. <laughs> so this might be either um, maybe the dots have not been connected for a lot of people, or it could be completely new information for you, but we're really excited about it and have a feeling that you're going to be as well. Well, they uh, got going a lot earlier than a lot of the other people that we're talking about. Well, you know, it's interesting because there is actually a thread to Pierre Schaefer. And in the research that I did about Pierre Schaefer, um, something came up when I was researching him and his work um, around the time that he was doing the train song. So the very first, you know, considered music contract uh, that he created, um, John Cage was at the same time creating something similar mm. in New York. So it was like all happening at the same time around 1948. I guess and he wasn't somebody that I had in mind when I said that. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's one yeah. of the earlier. When you think of electronic music, like they are very much at the forefront. Yeah. So uh, Bibi and Louis were in New York at the time when John Cage was in New York um, and had received his grant to make uh, the Williams mix, which is also considered right around the same time as Pierre Schaefer's train song. I'm calling it. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. That we all was know also music concrete. And so they were involved in that, which was really interesting to find out because I did not set out to tie these things together. I just knew that I'd always, you know, wanted to dive deeper into their work. And when I did, I found like all these threads to the other people we've discussed. Well, it was really interesting. They seemed to be very social, at least in the beginning until they had to be like hermits with their work. But like, yeah, they, they were out and about. 
Um, I don't know how many times I've heard uh, BB explain that they, every Friday night, went to a bar and met with all the creatives, you know, that were hanging out in New York at the time, and that's where she Paint met. the scene for us. John Cage and, and uh, Tudor. And, yeah, um, he's the most prominent one, and his name kept sticking out to me, and I wanted to make a list of everyone that she mentions mm -hmm. being around. It's like uh, Stockhausen and... Um, you know, Edgar Brace and people like that who were Basically, around. if people were in town, they anyone, went to this thing. Anyone who was making tape music at the time, anyone who was doing electroacoustic music concrete came through BB and Louis Barron's studio in New York, which was literally just an apartment. It was a destination Village spot, yeah. That they seemed. turned into a studio. Um, so let's take it back a little bit, or let's like, I guess, jump to the, the punchline. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. What, what are, are they, they known, known for? That was not planned. How amazing is that? <laughs> Who are they and what are they known for? Uh, if you are familiar with the retro sci-fi classic film. Starring Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. Uh, Forbidden Planet. If you're familiar with that movie, uh, Louis and B.B. Barron were the ones who made the first electronic movie score for that movie. I read somewhere that they also were credited with the first piece of electronic, re recorded electronic music in 1950. That was on their, like, oh, really? Wikipedia We'll have page. to look into yeah, that But anyway, well. like, this is more about Forbidden Planet. So the story of their uh, eventual assignment to make electronic music for Forbidden Planet is pretty fantastical. And their whole lives seem to, to be like yeah. this story of it was very you know I always use the reference and it's kind of a crappy reference so maybe I won't use it I got to think of something better but the Forrest Gump they're like they were like the Forrest Gump of like tape music in America in New York like they just seemed to like sort of stumble across everyone but it really right like yeah. they really did like it's insane it's all true it's just. Stranger than fiction, I guess you'd say. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to believe. I, I have a lot of questions about, you know, what were, what was their real day to day that they were these kind of people who were out and about, but also being sort of hermit inventors, you know? How could they be so social and be so connected to everyone, but also be really in their own world, creating their own they seem to be really good at time management in that regard. That seems like something that normally isn't paired together. Right, right, yeah. It's like a lot harder. Like, how did they... I guess maybe they just went to that one Friday night thing. Well, and the rest of the time I, they were working on music. The As I've been collecting this information, what seems to be the thread is this one author avant-garde artist that they met in California. When they first got married, they moved directly out to California. And it may be because they knew it this wouldn't. person already. Anais Nin is her name, and I'm gonna pull that up to get that correct. But and I don't know, I don't know how they met, so I want to find out more about that. Um, but they knew her. She was uh, she's credited as being an essayist. She's a novelist and a writer, and somehow they knew her in in California. And because they knew her, they everything stems from that. So the very first film that they scored, um, you know, a lot of people say uh, Forbidden Planet's the first electronic film score, but they actually made electronic music very, very similar sounding uh, for a film that she did the, the spoken word for. 
uh, called The Bells of Atlantis. So I'm actually, I'll throw that in there first since that's really right. the, the They did first. like three films before they... They did three experimental yeah. short films. But she, everything that I looked up, it's she was the thread through it all. So she's the one who told them, go to New York and go to the artist club and meet John Cage, you know? Like yeah. she was the one and I don't know how they knew her in the first place. But she's the through line for all of this. So because of her, they did music for film and because they did this film they were able to say hey we do music for film and got hired to do forbidden planet so and they did say that a lot of the decisions that they made uh sort of begrudgingly were so they could pay their rent because everybody was starving at the time and yeah you know like everybody was you know basically just looking for ways to uh make money doing what they love um and what I found, you know, really interesting was that they talked a lot about how they didn't want... They didn't want it, They right. didn't want their art to be something they needed to do for money. That's and why I they, said begrudgingly. They think that, you know, those things should not be connected, as all, you know, purist artists would feel. Um, sound familiar, folks? It sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, but, and especially they feel like uh, in their later years being interviewed that... Um, electronic music was being specifically kind of exploited. This is like in the 80s, exploited mm. to make a buck, you know, because it was like the hip new thing and it's all about the gear and, you know, how fast things were changing. Um, it made them want to go back to their tube-based creations even more. Tube and tape. Tube and tape. Um, if I ever started a magazine, that's what it would be called. Tube and tape. Yeah. Tube and tape. It. You would read it? Oh, yeah. thanks. I'd be curious how you're getting your hands on tube. They're rough. I know. Like, I, I don't make me start talking be like about a resource. Don't make me start talking about Metasonics again. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what Metasonics is. Uh, it's a tube-based synthesizer company. Uh, they make modules. They make you know whole units. They make a tube-based drum machine um they what let's talk about tubes for a second like why are they so tube. yeah why are they so important what are they how are they you know how are they vital to bb and louis work you know i wish that i knew more about the technical side of you know what tubes do um you know but all I know is that they predated transistors and integrated circuit chips for a way to, um, you know, sort of make circuitry, more complex circuitry possible. Um, you know, so they're kind of like the earliest method. I know there were what, like the Turing machine was made with vacuum tubes, you know, like early computers. I guess there is an, a way to make uh, logic circuits happen with tubes. Um, like I said, I don't. I don't know. I'm We're not, not tube experts. I'm but. not a, an electrical <laughs> engineer by any any means. But that's an interesting point, though, because uh, Louis Barron was also not an electrical engineer. Um, neither he was more so than me. <laughs> they they were more like hobbyists. So. Um, they both studied music in college, and Louis was a ham radio enthusiast. 
It all seems, see, that's something I want to get into <laughs> because I feel like if you understand, you know, what goes on with like, you know, making a, a ham radio and, and operating it, um, I feel like that allows you to understand a lot more uh, about what's going on with audio circuitry in general. So he was toying around with radio technology at a pretty young age and when he stumbled upon a certain book is when things really changed for him. Um, but I think that he had been playing with tubes and circuits and radios for some time before he found this book. So the thing that seems to be the most important aspect to their work and sort of the, the turning point and the theme of it all is this book called Cybernetics. Um, I'd be curious if anyone has heard of this before. Um, it sort of has a sci-fi sort of uh, mythology to it. And if you're looking um, for that on the web, I've found that it has a much longer title. It's, it's Cybernetics. Uh, Col colon? Colon. <laughs> or control and communication in the animal and machine, in the machine. Um, and I was just Enough. sort of like, you know, going through, you know, the, the summary of the book. And uh, the author, Norbert uh, Wiener, um, I think he was out of MIT. He um, was a math prodigy. Math prodigy. So it, he had some high minded ideas. It's kind of like, it seems like he discovered the basis for so many modern technologies, um, you know, and what they were year outlined this? in this book. It was first put out in 1948. 1948 is such a pivotal year. They did a re uh, revision in 1961 that added a couple chapters. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the original was made in 1948. I imagine he did lots of lectures and things. I wonder if they ever met. Uh, as much as I've heard that Louis Barron was into the book, um, probably, you know, I would say that <laughs> like he's he all about it till his death. He was talking about it. Yeah. And he was, they were in New York, you know, so I he had to have come through there's a, with all the people they met <laughs> chance of possibility there. But yeah, like, um, I, one of the things that I found really interesting was that, um, he even alluded to the idea of what, uh, led to digital audio, like taking like a, a fluctuating, um, analog source and translating it using, uh, ones and zeros, you know, that's the, the basis for digital audio and that's in there. Um, I think he also touches on like, you know, something that, you know, basically is now considered a capacitor. Um, and he talked about, you know, rapidly like charging and discharging of many of these, you know, things, you know, which is basically how, um, you know, random access memory works, um, you know, so, which is, you know, sort of the foundation of modern computers and, you know, so he just like kind of laid out a lot of these really high tech, um, you know, sort of concepts, um, how, yeah, like how far do you think he was able to get with this? Like, it has it kind of reminds me. I haven't of, read the book, so I don't know yeah. how specific he gets. But there's I mean, a lot of like I guess there's circuitry involving here. vacuum tubes and stuff that was kind of the, you know, I, I guess Louis and and BB and you know BB constantly said that Louis was the circuit guy, you know, and so he would, you know, take these circuits, you know, that were designed, you know 
basically examples of, you know, these logic and communication type, um, you know, uh, circuits. Yeah. yeah. And, and he would make them and then run them through an amplifier. And that was, you know, how they got their audio sound. Um, yeah. So there's studio logic circuits and that's where the random. So, you know, one, one of the big things, you know, like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Todd uh, Barton and the Krell patch and, you know, he's really into this analog, uh, random, uh, you know, patch generation, generative, um, you know, synthesis. Uh, So that was kind of like the thing that they found most interesting about these circuits was that, you know, it allowed you to sort of generate these random uh, pulses, which when amplified, you know, made these, you know, super you know, random and weird uh, squeals and and bleeps. And they would take them and record them. And, you know, basically they would build these circuits and they would die really quickly because they overloaded them. And like, they were basically doing all the wrong things. But kind Um, of intentionally. But kind of intentionally. And they would record as much as they could. You know, they just, they had rooms of tape uh, that they acquired and they would record as much as they could from these devices. And then... They would manipulate the tape. They would make loops. They would slow down. They would speed up. They, you know, and it's sort of the nature of the equipment too that gives it the character of the sound because it was what we would consider like too low tech. Uh, the kinks hadn't been worked out. They were unreliable and unstable. Uh, you know, they couldn't really get control. They couldn't control things as as much as. We obviously can control every aspect of everything. They didn't want to. They didn't want to control it. Um, They were sort of like social psychologists in that sense that they felt that these um, these circuits that they were building and the tools they were using were organic as as much as we are, and that they should have um, their own sort of free will. Which is the basis of cybernetics. Cybernetics is considered self-regulating. mechanisms so they were really into this concept of you know these circuits you know basically being their own having their own lifespan you know and like going through different stages of development um on their own and it also this cybernetics book touches on artificial intelligence and you know pretty much everything we're talking about today they were thinking about in 1948 which blows um, my mind. I mean, you know, just the the future so, thought involved with that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I'm just so excited about how everything connects. So I'm posting this link to Todd Barton's Krell patch, one of the videos that he has up. Um, and what's so interesting is that the Krell is uh, one of the, the, I don't want to say characters, but uh, it's a element in the it's movie. An ancient people. Forbidden Planet. So the movie that they scored, Forbidden Planet, has this peoples in it uh called the krell and they're only ever referred to they were though definitely see the movie right if you haven't seen it just stop go see it stop what you're doing stop watch Um, this later and 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 go watch forbidden planet um but the thing is that there are people from a distant planet who were way way ahead of even this like cybernetic stuff billions of years ago so they were like uh which is a doing, common alien concept. Doing you know, the this aliens sort of are AI stuff. Advanced. Yeah, self-regulating yeah. everything. You know, their whole civilization was sort of self-generative or whatever. And um, that is sort of the idea behind how Louis and Bibi were making their 
electronic music anyway. And then Todd Barton was inspired by them and has this Krell patch that's self-generating. So it's like, it all ties together at a very deep level, but also it's just kind of fun, fun movie magic type stuff too. Well, you know, and it, and it just so happens that, you know, the reason for the Krell patch is because, you know, Don Buchla was also really into, um, you know, these random self-generating uh, technologies and circuits and things. And, you know, he's known for the source of uncertainty, which is, you know, this random uh, voltage generator. Um, you know, so Todd was basically, you know, making a patch that involved, he, he calls the, the random, like basically a spice and you either like a lot of it or a little bit of it, or it depends on the situation. And, you know, so he's creating this, this patch that just is based, you know, completely on the random control voltages, basically controlling things all over the, you know, the music easel or whatever, you know, the synthesizer that he's using. He's translated it to a bunch of formats. Um, and so he was like, this reminds me of the score of uh, Forbidden Planet, which he, you know, loved, you know, as a, as a younger person. And, you know, actually, um, you know, so this was like the name for the patch came from what the, the sound of it reminded him of, mm -hmm. not necessarily. He didn't get inspired by it. It was probably somewhere in his subconscious anyway, because right. it's, it's so But what's interesting about that is that, you know, the random, you know, nature of it is sort of what inspired the patch. Yeah. You know, for, That's what I'm saying. It's sort of like for Louis a chicken egg. Baby. Yeah, exactly. It's, so it's a very interesting uh, concept. There's a, there's a lot uh, of woo-woo uh, yeah. <laughs> surrounding... Um, they had a lot of these ideas. people, this book, this movie, you know, like it's, they, they talk about, you know, being in the village in the fifties and how they were much more aligned with like poets and authors and dancers of the time rather than musicians. So they were kind of shunned from the music community because there were some issues with like the musicians union and being replaced by electronic instruments and that sort of thing. And because mm. they weren't in the musicians union at the time, but they did this score. They weren't allowed to be credited as musicians. So like, I believe it was up, it won an Oscar, but they weren't credited as doing the music. So they didn't get the Oscar. And so like, they never got any uh, monetary. Well, they never did another benefit film. from it either. And they did experimental stuff, but yeah, they were blacklisted. They, never, they were blacklisted. Yeah. From, I found that extremely interesting. From Hollywood, completely. So they got, they got in, in this like very, like they met a dude and he was like, come make music for this film. And it happened to be like the biggest film of the time. And then that was it. They were blacklisted completely because of the fact that they were using electronic elements and uh, they were, it well, was Well, it's almost like he had to, you know, when, when he made the decision to work with them, I'm sure that it caused sort of like an uprising in... Yeah, know, there were like lots of secret meetings that were discussed about having, whether or not they should be allowed into the union or not. Um, there were secret meetings about what to call the score. It ended up being referred to as electronic tonalities instead of electronic music. I think they were thought of as sort of like... You know, I don't know if, if, if any of you have ever gone to music school mm. or, you know, been involved in that scene. Like, I think it's similar in like the theater world, but like they were like the pop, you know, star type people in a, you know, very, you know, they weren't of, academics. 
academic right they, they were whenever they were in music circles they were like the ones who weren't academics and if anything they, they were threatening drive. because they were using electronics right and, like it's almost like they were considered like imposters like how dare you be so influential and innovative when you're not an academic and you're not you which know, they, they, claim, they were called that not even musicians they couldn't yeah. even use the term electronic music yeah i just said that right and so sorry we're just like so excited and we're talking over each other um it's i think because they're so um, interested in the ideas around why they make music and why they use electronic elements and not so much the technical side, it gets us a little bit more excited because it's, it's about having an art point of view about it, about like, you know, converting sort of your internal feelings and ideas into sound that, and you're not trying to control, like you don't have to be an expert in the elements they hadn't even actually been invented yet they they said that there was some test equipment that was being used right we've talked about this with some other people that some of their contemporaries were using test equipment to make sound but i, I heard some bb said in one interview she's like there wasn't even a sine wave generator when we were doing this right. you know so it wasn't so much about uh the equipment as it was about uh th these ideas about like cybernetics and that the the circuits had a free will and letting them generate for themselves. They weren't into gear. They if they which seems kind of weird, right? If they didn't create it, it, it was all about the you know I guess creating the the signal generators and things. You know, were that was part of the thrill for them. You know, so if they weren't creating it, then it kind of like didn't count almost as a... Yeah, they really only used things that they built. That they built, Really, it was right. Louis, yeah. So Louis was was taking these circuits that were designed in the Cybernetics book and, and using them for music instead. And then they would kind of spend a lot of time kind of with the idea of what it was and building it and seeing what would happen. And then a lot of times it wouldn't even work. And then they would just move on to the next thing. It and does say <laughs> that they, um, you know, the sounds that they used, the tonalities were generated from a ring modulator. Oh, so they had a ring modulator. So they did build a circuit. But I think that the ring modulator... It like, was called that, but... Method, you know, was kind of the... That was what the circuit ended up being. It wasn't that they intentionally made a right. ring modulator. They actually had no idea what these circuits were going to do, even as they were using them. So basically, they would build the circuits. They didn't know what they were going to do. They would record it to tape, probably just let that run all night, wake up in the morning, do some splicing, do some processing, and that's what it was. Yeah, They, they let liked. it be what it was, and if they heard something that sounded right for the scene that they were scoring, then they would use it. I think they called like delay and reverberation the same thing. I don't know if they used like, you know, spring reverb, everything was mechanical, you know, like, so there was no, all those tubes. Yeah. But they, I think that they refer to reverberation as what we now call delay. Hmm. So to them, the, the tape delay, like feedback, you know, this short of the delay time or whatever, like a really short delay with a lot of feedback would be considered reverberation. Mm, okay. Um, so that seems the to be terms, the only yeah. effect that they used, really. It was just like, you know, it was, it was a ring modulator that was randomly spitting out 
sounds and a you know reverberation which is just a tape delay to them you know that's pretty much all they were using and that's what it, I mean. It does sound like that. It's yeah, just, it's, it's, it's got just that a very primitive unique, sound. It's got a, It's just a very unique flavor of it. Mm-hmm. They did say that you know a lot of the techniques were developed when they were working with John Cage. So going back to that, actually, um, they met him through this artist's night at the bar, um, and he was given a grant uh, for a year to work on sort of like, I think it was like the exploration of sound. It was very vague. Uh, someone gave him a grant. It was an architect. It was an architect called Paul Williams, actually. Um, and he had known, Louis and Bibi had the only recording studio for avant-garde music at the time in New York. So they um, got paired up. So they were part of the team that got the grant. And so uh, what they were doing was uh, creating this thing called the Williams Mix, which was, you know, early music concrete, one of the first. So the techniques and the ideas, though they said that they were hired as sort of like the engineering assistants to create the found sounds, to record them. So they had like four categories of sounds that they were supposed to create, which was like city sounds, country sounds, some, some other things. Um, so they, would, they recorded the sounds and then um, they said they had, you know, tapes, just you know, loops and things hanging all over their apartment, and John Cage was there um, splicing and and kind of he was making those decisions about you know what it was going to end up being and how it would go together. But they said they would put it in all kinds of orders, and actually let like the randomness was part of it too. They would put the loops or the splices in random orders, uh, and I think that's a lot of where they learned, and then processing it obviously. He is, you know, the reason they even knew to do any of that uh, with the tape. Um, I think they were just sort of getting into the idea of using a tape recorder and weren't really sure what to do with it, but they had the they idea. They had one of the first tape recorders made in the United yeah, States. Yeah, they had one of the they first. Were, it was made that's to been order. Said so many times. It was made custom for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had the idea that maybe this is for more than just recording, that you could do manipulation, but John Cage is the reason that I think that they develop those techniques which then into. led to you know them being able to so in a way spell. it's almost like they were his source material yes like he was yes. the composer absolutely and they were his sample bank but because he they was, called them samples too right? yes that's right they called uh even what they created for forbidden planet samples which i'm not sure that anybody was using that term at that point what would that have even meant you know, mm-hmm. so their sort of avant-garde art comes first, being surrounded by the artists of the time in this very like futuristic, you know, making art for art's sake time post-war era is the reason that we have this amazing score for this film and a lot of the ideas that they um, were pursuing, even until they both passed away. They were still working, but uh, which with was really primitive stuff that they had built. Which they they ended up getting divorced later in life. Yeah, they got they, divorced, but they kept working together. They they, they might have worked together here and there. Um, BB lived a lot longer than Louis. Yeah. He yeah he died in nineteen eighty nine. So kind of 
synth Pre- music was starting to come into internet. the, the foray, but but he had a lot of ideas about the computer Pre- being massive used. Internet. Yeah, the computer being used for music was something he was like, he could see that and where it was going, and he was very interested in it. Well, um, if you read cybernetics, yeah. he could see everything that he was going to happen. I mean, was happening. Jeez, I couldn't believe, you know, just reading that's the, actually the, yeah the description of the, the book. description of the book. Yeah, it's, this um, interview that I found, uh, I believe, is from 1986. It's been archived here, and, and it's incredible. It's such a cool resource because they're, you know, very very open. It's sort of like they can't believe anybody even cares about their ideas at this point. Um, and they, they get very vulnerable and personal. Um, and pretty much every line that I read, I would want to say here because it was sort of a wow for me, uh, really insightful, really inspiring, you know, telling their story, but also getting into their ideas about how they think that, you know, the fact that the world is moving at such a fast pace now and people aren't spending time thinking about what they're doing and why and they're just trying to chase money or ideas or the next piece of gear um, made made them really sad. Except they said that if they did use a synthesizer... Ah, yes. Of course we feel validated in this. It would be a Bukla. Yeah, they were exposed to Bukla, uh, I guess in the late 70s, early 80s, and felt that if they had used any synthesizer, that would be the one, which probably is because of what you were talking about earlier with its um, the random, more random. The, the, there was a big, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Focus <laughs> on uh, random uh, patches, random voltage, um, and also interesting ways to it's like if you were going to try to control the sound let's approach it from a very human um, so the, the spirit behind Google, it shares something with their sort of approach to things yeah they seem to align um, it almost makes me I, I don't know you know this the story behind this error, you know, that it's true, but it almost makes me think that um, Don might have read cybernetics, you know? Yeah, I'd be curious to know. <laughs> because the, if there, if those principles the yeah, it seems seem to be very to be, similar. You know, sort of the common ground for, you know, the, the barons and you know, sort of his philosophy. But who knows? Yeah, that'd be something to look into as well. Um, well, that hasn't been mentioned. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure if we looked into it, we might find some threads there. Um, so, like we were saying, they uh, were blacklisted from working in film ever again. So they had to kind of go back to their roots, I guess, in the avant-garde world. Um, I know one of the first things they did before they even got into making electronic music, which I thought was really interesting that, that it wasn't equated to this, but they had been given a, a, a wire recorder uh, as a wedding gift, which is an odd wedding gift, and I'm curious why someone would think that they would want it, but it is perfect for them. Uh, they were given a wire recorder, and <laughs> they were both, you know, had studied music in college, and they got married, and they moved out to California, and they talk about how they had no way of making money. 
you know, no relation to today's world whatsoever. Um, they didn't know how to make money as musicians. They didn't know anybody, um, but they knew this one woman, Anais Nin, and she was an author. And so they used the wire recorder, and then, you know, pretty quickly after that got a tape recorder, uh, to record authors reading their own works and sort of, you know, spontaneously speaking about ideas as well, which is like, okay, that's the first audiobook. I didn't hear anybody say that that's what it was, but she said no one was interested in it. But they have all these recordings. Someone has them. This is the other thing is I want to find out who's got the archive of all this because she I heard her in an interview say that she has everything they've ever done. Um, and I think Whoa. their son has it, but like, who has it? I want it out. Somebody needs to put all this stuff out. But there's the, recordings of for years, Henry, Louis had Henry it, right? Miller and Aldous Huxley and you know, people like that, that they were like, oh yeah, we knew these people in, out in California and they they read their books for us and we recorded it to tape, but nobody wanted to buy it. Louie had it for a long time, she said, like at his place. And then- well, She says she has an archive of everything. He had a studio in- He had a studio, so he had the equipment. He had all the equipment. So all the equipment that they used- And a lot of it got damaged built. after he passed away in the Northridge earthquake. Yeah. So it was at his house. They had they had gotten divorced, so he was remarried. Uh, he lived, I guess, somewhere in the Northridge area, and during we that earthquake, that yeah, so close. it got it was close enough that it got damaged. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his equipment was damaged in that earthquake. But she has the archive, so they do have a son together who is the steward of all this now. But uh, he mentioned, you know, briefly, and I don't know, this was maybe two thousand eight, that no one seemed interested in any of it. But we are. <laughs> yeah. We would like it to exist. We would like to have access to it. I'd love to hear. She said that they had a lot of tape recording. They just recorded everything. They recorded their lives, basically. So they would have parties. You know, she said Joseph Campbell was at one of their parties just before he became who he is now. You know, laughing, talking. Singing songs singing, from his college Yes, singing years. college songs. Um, I, I want to hear all that stuff. To me, that's, you know, our... The history that I yeah. find interesting is people don't know that they're going to be influential or famous being caught in real moments and hearing that on tape. And then, gosh, if we could make music out of it. Exactly. I mean, you know, I'll, but I'll, even just to hear their I'll other make music works. off of like, you know, FM radio. So I would love to have some old recordings of, yeah. you know. Famous people authors. that eventually we become to know as famous authors at, at parties. <laughs> Another thing that I did after, you know, they were blacklisted from Hollywood is that they scored, made scores for theater, plays and ballet and things like that, um, which I think she also has those. I read somewhere she did, uh, they did a score for a Gore Vidal play. Um, also, they got pigeonholed into doing outer space music. So he was doing some sort of outer space play and it was turned into a movie and they wouldn't let them do the score for it, even though it was like a smash success on Broadway or off Broadway or wherever it was, um, that they couldn't even do the score for that film, even though they had made it for the play. But all their other work, like I said, like she's got them and there's some kind of archive that somebody has of their later work. Um, they made, apparently they made an album for vinyl together, like much, much later. Uh, that again, she says nobody cares about that. No one's heard it. So there's all this stuff that I would love to hear, but we I don't know who has it. Um, so we probably need to do some investigating as a group here. Um, I'd love to know if anybody has any connections to somebody who might know where the archive is. 
There's this interesting tidbit as well in her later years. Um, after Louis passed, she was invited to create a new work at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and the professors there taught her like the latest, what it says, sound generating technology. Uh, she was taught, you know, she was basically caught up to date with uh, the technology. It doesn't for say specifically what she It doesn't used. say what she used, but it just says that the sounds that she collected there were imported into Digital Performer on the Mac and organized to create her final work called Mixed Emotions. So that exists somewhere. I'd like to find that. It's on a CD, but I don't know who released it or where you can get it. She also founded the Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States in the 80s. Um, so she stayed very active um, building community and learning about what was going on, even, even though they wanted things to stay tube-based. You couldn't get tubes anymore, so. We'd love to know, you know, your experience or, or understanding if you have any insights or if you're new to it, that's super exciting to us because you're getting to hear about it for the first time and that's really an exciting world to be able to step into. So, watch Forbidden Planet. So go watch Forbidden Planet now. right now. Read at least the 1961 version of Cybernetics. Yeah, everyone get your copy of Cybernetics out and let's uh, go through it page by page and see if we can make sense of it. And uh, we're excited to to connect with you about this, about these ideas. All right, have a great week. Yeah, have a great week, everybody. Stay cosmic, stay tuned in. We'll be uh, looking forward to talking to you more in the group. And now, our very inspiring conversation with Todd Barton about the Barons, Forbidden Planet, and the Crow Patch. So uh, we obviously know that we share a common love of Buchla synthesizers, and also the famous Krell patch is something that people always throw our way. You know, hey, do you know Todd Barton? Do you know about the Krell patch? Do you know about Forbidden Planet? And it's always like, yes, yes, and yes, but also thank you for letting us know that you know about those things, right? So word is out. Todd Barton, Krell patch, Forbidden Planet, it's, there's a, there's a tie there. So I'm curious how you feel about that association and, you know, just your experience of all of that stuff. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, and sometimes that's in those sometimes from. in those scenarios we're like, what, Todd, are, are you here? Like you know, <laughs> you chime in. <laughs> yeah. Um I love it. So uh, game over. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> Done. Easy. Check. Um, no, I, I it's, it's you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving as far as you know, just uh the patch, the Krell patch just sort of was like a stumble on, on one end, it was a stumble on discovery. On the other, once that it sort of happened for me, which is like 10 or 12 years ago, I realized that I had been going toward it unconsciously for maybe years. And it wasn't until one night when I put this cable in that slot uh, that something happened. And... Uh, a big part of it, too, was, ooh, something happened, and then it disappeared. So uh, then I went, okay, well, if I do this, then everything's going crazy and fast. So that's not where I want to be. So slow it down, and then I would get some things bouncing around, and then it would sort of stop. 
And my inclination was, of course, turn a knob, make it come back. And then I went, ah, no, wait for it. Wait and see what's happening. And so I would sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes before anything would happen. And where that's coming from is I got to spend a whole day with B.B. Barron back in the day. And, um, yeah, we went, started at her house for brunch, and then it turned into lunch, and then it turned into dinner out um, with her then-husband, Leonard. And I remember asking her about, you know, building, you know, building the circuits for uh, Forbidden Planet. Actually, they'd been building those before Forbidden Planet mm-hmm. for a couple of you, you probably have already done the research for Bells mm-hmm. of Atlantis and all that other uh, other yes. recording. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she said the first time they built the circuit from Norbert Wiener's, uh, you know, Wiener's cybernetics yes. book, mm-hmm. Uh, she just sort of lit up when she was telling the story. She said, so we built it, and then we plugged it in, and the tubes lit up, and they got warm, and they got brighter, and there was no sound. We were really disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and we waited, and we waited, and we waited like, I think they waited like 15, 20, 30 minutes, nothing and so, you know, they had a working studio that Cage and Tudor and everybody was coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had plenty to plenty to work on. <laughs> right. Yes, they were just there anyway. Yeah, they mm-hmm. went back to the other part of their studio and started, you know, d- doing the work. And about three hours later, they heard a sound. It had taken that long for the circuitry to finally feed back. And they went, ooh. Okay, and it was just a little soft pitch, and then it got louder and louder, and then it bifurcated and went into some double tones or whatever. It started wobbling and screaming, and finally it just blew up. And luckily they turned the toothpicks on. And that's, you know, so then they started building circuits like crazy and recording each of them. And she, you know, again, she lit up. She said they were like little life forms. They, they, they were birthed. They had a beginning. They had an adolescence and a maturity and then old age and either died with a bang or just fizzled out. Um, so it was that in the back of my mind as I was about to change that knob to just wait for it, you know, like they did. Ooh. Wow. That's really powerful for a lot of reasons. And we've been spending some time just, you know, listening to people talk about cybernetics and then, you know, you're living your life and you're like, oh, I get it now. Like, there's just like the thing you see the patterns, you just understand it, you know, in this way. But when you're thinking about it, talking about it, listening to people talk about it, you're like, what? It's everything and nothing. But then when you put it in this very specific context, especially the way that I've heard BB tell the, these types of stories, she, you know, she lights up when she talks about tubes. How funny is that? Mm-hmm. I get it. But this idea, the way you laid it out in this story explains like all of it, but in this like beautiful presentation. Oh, 
<laughs> it was BBs. <laughs> right. It's like how all those threads come together and like your experience of her telling that story. It's just like all those layers are what makes it for me this like living experience of history. Yeah, yeah. So that's you, why I'm having fun with these conversations. When did you first come across um, their work? Boy, I probably saw Forbidden Planet in the 60s, most likely. And then... Um, but so that was your know, first uh, experience of them? You know, it was just the science. It, it was forbidden. Yeah, that would have, would have been the only thing. The only thing. Like commercially available. available. Commercially yeah. available, yeah. But I, you know, I had no idea how it was being done, nor... Mm. You know, those years I was still into Baroque and Renaissance music. And uh, so I wasn't going down the rabbit hole of, Oh, how'd they do that? Uh, mm. that okay. Came, uh, you know, I got turned on to analog synthesis in the mid seventies. And so then I re probably revisited that back in the there you go. early eighties. And, uh, and yeah. And then, but it wasn't until much later that, you know, these stories started to really surface and we started to really understand how those circuits were being built. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, the, oh, a sidebar, a throwback to um, that uh, day with BB mm -hmm. and the, the book Cybernetics. She, she said, you know, I went to UCLA yesterday to the library and they don't have the book. <gasps> I think that's a shame. You know, it's like out of date or whatever. You know, it's actually not, I, I think there's reprints now, but there was mm -hmm. a time where. But not of, at that time, right. It had a void <laughs> period. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, in the early 80s, I was starting to get into uh, uh, self generating patches. Uh, mm. And uh, I had a Roland Jupiter 8, one of the first, and I had a three panel surge system that surge had built for me. And an Effectron, do you know what that, Delta Labs Effectron, it was like a rack mount uh, delay, but it had CV inputs. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen it, it's blue. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but CV inputs were like, that wasn't happening much back then to commercial rack mounts. No, no, I didn't know what that it had that. Is set the... And the Roland Jupiter had like ran, you could play a bunch of pitches and it would just hold it and randomly go through them. Mm -hmm. And it had CV and Surge, of course, was driving the whole thing. So Surge had had this like long, you know, I don't know, it took five minutes to go from bottom to top of the pitch range. But as it went through things, it would trigger different delays and it would also trigger different things in the in the Roland uh, and so I went you know I built that one morning and went oh okay and then put the big reel to reels on like what one and seven eighths or whatever that <laughs> is right just you know surveillance yes. surveillance speed <laughs> for many hours and then yeah. went to work and, you know, came back at the end of the day to hear, you know, hear how it had morphed and changed. And 
then of course I had to sit and listen to a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about this quite a bit of like the amount of time you take to create things and then the amount of time you spend listening back to it. It's like a very time consuming process. And you kind of brought that up when you were talking about BB's story with the, the circuits that they were building and, you know, just the, the feeling I get from everything I've researched is just the amount of time and she had mentioned like uh that's at some point like there was just like no money to pay for all of this stuff and this space and this time and I don't know just that idea of how like the time is so necessary but that actually is costly yeah and there's all these parameters to they're the just the specialness of the time that they were doing what they were doing Mm -hmm. and how cutting edge it was and all the things that they had to do to uh acquire this equipment and to get grants for things and to like collaborate with people and to like you know create their space as a recording studio for everyone to use so they could pay the bills and things that's like such a tangent that I've just gone on for some reason but it all just feels so tied together have the circuits (laughs) I'm having like overload of all these things that I know and how it how much it's inspiring me from what you're saying so have the circuits (laughs) been documented um do you know like that's not a question that came up while you were telling that lovely story um do you know if anybody's like actually well they're from the cybernetics book they I mean but like a documentation of what they're actual what they ended up making and using oh I would want that so bad you know for some other stuff yeah, I found, there's a guy in England. I don't know whether he... Yeah, he, he actually did find a document of like a ring modulator. Okay. Yes. Sort of thing, and he built it, uh, you know, out of tubes. And I, I remember like 20 years ago going, hey, I'd love to build these. And everyone said, don't even go there. You will get electrocuted <laughs> you know you're not wanting to work with 120 volts <laughs> oh okay yeah so it's it's not a good idea uh, <laughs> um i i did a little history of the krell i'll send you the video that i Ooh. made for my students uh years ago oh, and wow. it has it has that uh, diagram and the actual built circuit um so i'll uh I'll get that to you after this. Oh, thank you. That's definitely for the history books. That's a hard to find kind of thing. And especially, oh my gosh, of course, someone in England was playing with the tubes. Was it F.C. Judd? <laughs> that just reminds me of the <laughs> fact that he so actually too. made a lot of tube circuits. And I think he had a ring modulator. And, you know, he wrote a book called like Electronic Music Composition or something like that. I have it. Um me too. Yeah, no, it wasn't FC Judd. It wasn't it FC. Was, uh, later. It was later than that. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Later than, yeah, because he was very super early um, as well. Yeah, same yeah. time frame, right? Mm-hmm. In the 50s. Yeah. Um, I've actually, you know, been meaning to try to like, you know, pick apart those circuits, um, you know, but I think it's a similar situation. Like they're, they're kind of, dangerous and not really worth it if if you 
don't really know what you're doing and haven't like invested a lot into tubes, you know, like it's a, it's, it's a serious matter. And the people that work with tubes on a commercial level, like, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> like in terms of like tube synths and stuff, like I. Yeah. Or like, yeah, it's like. Like Metasonics. And the, the Mark three, Mark two at uh, Princeton Columbia. That's a mm. Columbia. That's like something like, I don't know. 2000 tubes yeah. right how does that stay functioning <laughs> it's not but they yeah. do have yeah, but rca did give them a complete replacement set they just haven't been able to put them back in yet oh wow wow well that's that's quite a tidbit of history there <laughs> yeah Gosh. Wow. I, they were making the music of the future but it we ran out of tubes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And, I, and you know, it's so fascinating. It was so, you're talking about FC Judd, but you know, Tudor, David Tudor was right. in BB's studio. So he was seeing that stuff. And, and sooner, you know, uh, back, you know, he was starting to build feedback circuits and, you know, create big, huge feedback arrays with pedals and all sorts of things. And I just came across uh, Roland Kane, the Dutch composer. That he just sort of so like, um, I guess in 2017, they, they released a set of his stuff. But just last week, his daughter, Ilsa Kane, K-A-Y-N, mm -hmm. uh, released like 20 piece of 20 albums on Bandcamp and they were all remastered by Jim O'Rourke who's just like oh, awesome wow. and he was doing he was starting to do feedback experiments in the early 50s as well but in Germany mm -hmm. and he worked with Stockhausen soon after that and then went to Utrecht uh, to the uh, Institute of Sonology and um, back to what you were you know, we were talking about like mm, waiting for the circuits. Yes. Stuff. You know, I was reading and, and he would spend like years with walls of synths creating these feedback patches and not really being able to hear them until he flipped the switch. And so the uh, that was the like only performance right it's like patch 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 think 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 work work write scores and then turn the tape decks on flip the switch and let it run for an hour mm -hmm. until it whatever it does i mean that talk talk about patience and and uh and time right you're talking yes. about the time it takes you know Mm -hmm. Two years equals one hour of music that will never be heard again. Yes, yes. Yeah. Elian Radik talks about this a lot. Mm -hmm. She spends years on her pieces, too. And interestingly, we were actually just talking about this today. I think that's why I was like, about time, you say. Our own. <laughs> Do you have some to spare? Music. I, I was just talking about how, like, I have to remind myself that... Um, you know, I try to take time out of the equation when it comes to crafting electronic music because it always takes so much longer. It is a time consuming process and there's no, you, there's no prize for you finished it. Quick. 
<laughs> well, because you know. most of it is the process anyway. And, but I have to really like slow remind myself that constantly throughout the process of doing any sort of sound design, especially if it's something where like, you know, I'm, I'm like using a sampler or, you know, even the DAW and like, you know, I want to save this piece and I'm working on it over a long period of time, you know, like, I don't know, like there's just this instinct in me to like, want to get it done, you know, like, and I just have to constantly. Well, because you have all these other ideas or, that are waiting. You know, I mean, like we're all busy and we have <laughs> stuff going on besides this music piece that we're working on. And like, you know, you're just like in this yeah. flow of like, you know, okay, get this done. And like, but I have to like, just shut that part of me off and like really just tell it, that's you're you're not welcome here really because <laughs> I don't care how long this takes I want to get it right you know like <laughs> that's the only thing that matters it like it's gonna take you know as long as it is it needs to take like I, that the time is literally not a factor you know but like my brain it's also the most important wants factor. to make it a factor you know like <laughs> it's like yeah. natural, a natural uh, yeah definitely resisting the um Ooh, this is going to be an interesting segue if I can land it. Uh, it makes me think about how it's just your resistant. We're re trying like as artists, like we want to resist whatever, like the wave of sort of the mainstream energy, if you will, of, you know, getting it done and hustling and all that stuff. So we're like, you know, resisting that with what we're doing. Um <laughs> And it makes me think about how Bibi and Louie did a lot of this when they were living in the village in the 50s in this very avant-garde movement. And you were talking about all the people that came through their studio and the other things those people were doing and how they relate to what Bibi and Louie were doing. And it's because like there were only so many people doing this that they were all in the village. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what I was trying to circle back to was this idea that um, like if you're feeling frustrated about your process or like it's uh, resistant to like your the other parts of your life, you're probably onto something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Blow down. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I find that things like self-generating patches like help me slow down mm -hmm. and the yeah. process of making them and spending time with them and, and deep listening. is kind of, I guess what that would be. Yeah. Well, you, you begin to have a relationship with the circuit and the sound. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, it's like having a relationship with a person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it takes time. And it's always in flux, mm. depending on where we're at, what we ate for the <laughs> yes. that morning, and um, you know how awake we are. Oh, the temperature! The circuits definitely are like us about the temperature. And like your example <laughs> about the feedback patch, you know, sometimes you need to take a little break, you know, from one of your good friends <laughs> and come back, you know, and revisit things after some time. Yeah. <laughs> and things are much oh, better. Oh, you'll hear it completely differently. <laughs> That's so true. You'll hear something so different out of it. That's going a little far with that one, but yeah, I read that. <laughs> well, you were saying that BB said that her circuits were like children or something, right? Mm. What is that what she said? Something like that? Yeah, well, uh, or beings, uh, life forms, life forms, much more sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that had a complete life cycle, you know. And, well, you know, that's interesting. That life cycle might take hours uh, as opposed to our life cycles, which hopefully oh, take yes. longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I remember um, in some point of my research, just getting this visual image of just like a wall of circuits that are just like exploding at random intervals <laughs> while they're in another room and tape machines are whirring away. Yeah. Every, that's like, that's pretty sci-fi to me. Everything looks breadboarded. <laughs> <laughs> with big honking vacuum with tubes. Big, <laughs> yeah. With like nuts and bolts from like automobiles holding it together. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, um, the, the other materials that they needed to get were also you know, not just laying around at the hardware store, if that was even a thing. Right. Well, they said you couldn't get. So it definitely seemed like it was unsafe. Yeah, really unsafe. And I was just uh, revisiting the tape, that first tape recorder they got in like 1948, I think. Yes. And uh, boy, that's pretty primitive. That I was. It's a wire recorder, right? Is it? Yeah, I, it looked like it was tape. Or it's the first tape recorder that was manufactured for the U.S. or something like that. It was like the oh, first it, one. It from Germany. From Germany, right, right, right. Yeah, the one from Germany. It was and... the first one anyone had in the U.S. or something like that. I love the lore. <laughs> and it was apparently used to record Hitler. Yeah. And, you know, well, and, and like then they had one. One like it, not theirs. Yeah, one like it, of course, yeah. <laughs> No, it's like a wedding present. That's Everything I say here is alleged. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we could put quotes around that. That's funny. So you were uh, taking a look at that specific. Yeah, they they uh, they used that to like record. That was like one of the ways they made money. Yeah, right. They yeah. recorded books on tape, like Henry Miller and stuff like that. Well, all the Suxley and Lias Nin. Yes, yes. That's the that's the gateway to New York is that they were recording people with their tape recorder that they got as a wedding present. Because I assume everyone knew they were quirky and that they would like that as a gift. I want to say that you're right about the wire recorder. I think they got a wire recorder. And then immediately got a tape recorder. Yeah, so the gift was the tape recorder. The tape recorder was completely separate than the wedding gift wire recorder. Okay, I'm conflating the stories. So they, they had both for sure. We just have all of this like... I know, too much information. (laughs) But Um. but that's the fun stuff. The thing about this this specific topic is that there's a lot of lore and there's a lot of storytelling and there's like facts, but there's also like, you know, John Cage is going to tell it one way. You know what I mean? There's like all these layers to how people tell these stories. So you have Mm -hmm. to kind of try to pick the truth out, (laughs) the things that matter. Yeah. And we're of talking the timelines about quite a while ago. But yeah, they were they were living in California. So they, they had this tape recorder and they were recording all of these amazing people with their books on tape. Like the first, <laughs> first book on tape idea, I think. Uh, and because of that, they met a nice nin who then kind of from then on, they were kind of inseparable, is from what I understand. But that's the reason we have the first electronic music with film is because yep. of her. That's right. Indeed. In fact, I was re-listening to Bells of Atlantis, which Ooh. is pre-Forbidden Planet, and you can surely start to hear uh, where they're going with that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a that's a definite favorite for people to send us when they find out that we're into this stuff because that's such a nugget of like, ooh, but do you know about this one? Mm-hmm. It's so good too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because it's much more rhythmic mm-hmm. oriented than uh, Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of that rhythm reminds me of uh, Silver Apples of the Moon, actually some of the timbres too. Ah, uh-huh. uh, and then, you know, and it's the the tape um, delay is like ever present in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much in in Forbidden Planet. Much uh, more controlled uh, there. Yeah, this mm-hmm. it was interesting that it was more rhythmic oriented for the most part. I think about two thirds of the way through, it goes sort of spacey, but then it comes. Mm-hmm. It just makes me want to live in whatever parallel universe where they didn't get like blacklisted from Hollywood and we had more of their scores. No kidding. Well, and the scores that are out there, you can't get. I mean, I look, you know, there's that whole long list of what they've done. They mm-hmm. did. Right. I haven't been able to find them. Yeah, you know, no. Folks, uh, amid the Facebook. Uh, no, that I would say of all of the people that we've covered, that's the one I get the most like zip files of, of things sent to me, like no hard copies of anything. There's no physical commercial release of things. It's all these like fragments that people yeah. are collecting and sharing. Yeah, I guess, you know, the then then that gets us to uh, her, her piece, Mixed Emotions, mm-hmm. 2000 which she did at UCSB. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, BB's legacy is so much more than Forbidden Planet. And, I mean, the impact that she's had is, I mean, it's deep. Yeah. Uh, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have <laughs> without her. So, um, you, when did you meet her? I think it was like, Early 2000s. Early 2000s. Okay. Maybe 2001, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, wow. right around the time she 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 had just had been working at UCSB, uh, getting all this stuff together for uh, mixed emotions. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. She just like really saw it all. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a lot to really take in. May I ask how you got linked up initially? Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) I I have all my life never shied away from just cold calling or or emailing people. So Mm. I just emailed her. I found, uh, I forgot how I got her email. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in L.A. I'm... um, at the time, I was doing a lot of work in Metasynth, the thing from UI Software. That mm. it, it, you know, it's a screen-based um, composition environment uh, that Eric Wenger created. And I was sort of like at the cutting edge there. And she, uh, maybe that's, she had heard about that and was really interested mm-hmm. in it. So part of the day was spent... I brought my laptop, and she was like, okay, show me medicine, and, and let's do this. Mm-hmm. So, so Does that run on OS 9? It may have. It's on 10 now. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I have an OS9 machine and um, I I have a lot of old software and plugins and stuff that I still, you know, use and, you know, for sound processing and stuff. And I feel like, you know, if that one was available for OS9, that'd be a cool one to get. Yeah, you can get the legacy one, I guess, or something. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it in my, you know, just looking around, but I have to remember to look into that one. Yeah, you and I software is the mm-hmm. site. Yeah, I've heard of it. I remember, you know, hearing about it even, you know, back in the early 2000s. Um, I just, I, I kind of forgot about it. Yeah, it's rather cool. Mm-hmm. It's an program. Uh, what would you compare it to? Uh, I don't know anything that's like, <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, you can do visual, you can, you know, import a pic, a, a photo or a drawing or something, and mm-hmm. it will, each individual pixel can be its own oscillator. So you have like 256 and you can, you can say this one is going to be, you can, you use bright, it. It's like Photoshop for sound. That's the closest thing. I can gotcha. Do. Oh, okay. You can do overlays. You can do uh, all sorts of filters that uh, filter the density, filter the volume, filter the spatialization, um, and you can use you can generate sounds. It has a built-in built-in synths. You can create your own sample libraries um i can see why bb would be interested in that (laughs) yeah Yeah, it was it was uh, yeah it's a trip wow yeah that's wow that's i'm like okay when can we get that that's i want that (laughs) what am i going to send you i'm sending you um oh your krell presentation krell presentation and I'll send you, it's short, it's like I took Kandinsky's um, Composition 8, my favorite Kandinsky, and I put it into Metasynth, and I created an entire or- orchestral um, sample set and just had Metasynth play the image. So That's super cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear that. That's incredible. That's such a, (laughs) I just love that arc of like, uh, we started at like homemade circuits and now we're at this, like, to, to be able to envision that even being possible is, is something I've seen as a thread through a lot of the people we've studied that they were able to see things and understand how something could work that didn't even exist yet just because they understood the principles of what they wanted to accomplish i guess and they knew okay well we'll need this and this and this to make that happen but they like wanted it to they like they like forged the path for us to be where we're at and now i feel like we're just like playing in a sandbox that they built yeah yeah tesla for sure yes (laughs) for sure I feel like DIY, if anything, like DIY has just gotten watered down oh, oh, <laughs> over ooh, the years in the sense that like, well, back in Tesla's day, like DIY meant, oh, man, you might explode yourself. <laughs> an entirely different thing than like, you know, messing around with some like solder kits, you know, like, 
<laughs> like mm-hmm. he literally had to like, you know, I mean, he invented technology. <laughs> he was like the James Cameron of Oh wow. <laughs> science. Like he could vision it. He could vision it and then just write and it. And make down. it happen based on knowing some stuff. <laughs> intuition. <laughs> mm, yeah. There's a lot of like, I don't mean this literally, but like being in the right place at the right time, just like existing in a certain time where it's like, you know, certain things, certain materials are available or certain ideas are brewing uh, is also something we've noticed. And especially with the way that like, uh, people seem to really be able to move around more in the like fifties and sixties. Right. So there's like, you were saying people who were hanging out in BB and Louis studio in New York were also in Germany with Stockhausen working on other things, uh, taking those same ideas and like moving, everybody was moving around and sharing their ideas more than anyone ever had. Mm -hmm. I think. I assume, I mean, I haven't been around forever, but (laughs) uh, that's my kind of interpretation of how we got to where we are now. And this like flurry of uh, wanting to, I think uh, maybe a little too specific, but I think that everyone was chasing like the computer, the like Mm. more accessible personal computer usage of like, we can do so much more with less kind of, I, I just remember Peter Zinoviev when we were studying him really surprised me how much he was like, I just want to talk about computers. Uh-huh. I just want to talk about how I'm going to be able to put a picture in there and like not do anything. And it's going to self generate, you know, all of that kind of stuff that you were just talking about. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that, that, that has been a fact. That's a factor that a lot of folks don't consider when they think, you know, when when you're trying to imagine how things were Mm -hmm, in that time is that the mentality, we romanticize the like limitations. Yeah, exactly. But they were like, no, we're, we're trying to build the future. It's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. I think I picked up on that. Thanks for helping me out with that random thought that I was having. <laughs> it's all swirling, you know? Yep. Yeah. You got to love the curvilinear uncertainty of analog. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you for bringing us back to that whole idea of the, the heart of cybernetics is that like, randomness is the self-generating principle well yeah i mean i guess the simple cybernetic circuit is right like a thermostat so well just self-regulating period yeah yeah, it's uh, when it starts getting too warm then it it, yeah it it sees it going towards chaos and (laughs) it puts the governor on it and then it keeps everything equal, you know, in equilibrium that way. Mm-hmm. But what I, you know, Roland, back to Roland Kane, mm. which I'm now obsessed with. I'll Amazing. send you a great article on him. Yes, and, please. Um, he was saying, you know, that's, uh, that's negative feedback. Uh, but if you insert more chaos into that, then you get positive feedback and then it gets chaotic. Oh. Okay. So, and that's what he was looking into. 
Yes. Gotcha. Okay. That just, mm-hmm. when, you know, there, there are no, you know, I might be getting this wrong, but it, you know, it, the fact that BB and Louie's circuits blew up meant that, you know, they, they went into positive feedback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have governors on them. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's the feedback of the guitar and the amp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Until it explodes. I love it. Uh, the other day we were checking out a, a video explanation of some of the cybernetics um, like principles and the guy was doing it on a surge. And oh, right, right, right. He was explaining oh, yeah. cybernetics. Feedback I don't really surge. know much about surge myself. Like, um, like we haven't really, <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me. We haven't really <laughs> explored the surge world that much. Like I've kind of like almost like kept it off limits for myself, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'd be interested to know your perspective on uh, why a surge would be used to demonstrate some cybernetic uh, uh, yeah, because of the patch programmability, the fact that you can just you, you anything can be anything. I mean, audio and CV are the same in in, in that world. The circuits are actually quite uh, basic, and they're wonderful. I mean, you know, that's where I started. Actually, I mean, I got hooked by a friend loaning me an easel for three days, but then I couldn't afford one. Uh, but I was able to, you know, work for a couple of years and get a surge back in 79. Oh, and mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, at the it's the circuits are so wide open and any circuit can be anything. It can be an oscillator. It can be a filter. I mean, they're sort of pointed towards, OK, this is an oscillator or this is a function generator, but it's oh, it's a subharmonic oscillator and it oh it can be an envelope follower oh and so with that much openness uh feedback is just i mean feedback can be amazing in fact i remember when i you know i it took me weeks to get a sound out of my surge back in 1979 it was just like <laughs> i'd spend eight hours a day and get something and it's like <laughs> But then when I started really getting, you know, things started happening eventually. And I was making patches like all day long. And I would make a complex patch. And always my go-to thing at the end of the day was a patch I'd liked or whatever. And it recorded it, notated it. And then I'd take, instead of going into the mixer to go so I could hear it, I would take that and go back into the very first part of the sound train. In other words, feed this entire patch back on itself and then take an output. And it was just like, whoa, okay, whole new world. I know what I'm doing tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. That is the explanation I needed about search. Are you satisfied? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like, just okay. I know, and sure. I haven't had like <laughs> a system know. lust in a while. I know, honestly. right? That's it what takes I'm like, a lot. Oh, it takes a lot these days <laughs> in this world of gear for me to get excited about something. But 
I saw that, um, I don't even, I forget the name of the company. It's like Prism something or other, a Prism Circuits or something like that is releasing something called a Quasar. And that caught my attention. It was black. It was like two panels. And it said that it was like specifically designed to like make unstable oh, yeah. sounds. That's I was like, all right, yeah. I, I, that's, that's kind put of the thing. That challenge accepted, right? Because in a way, like the justification is for, for Bukla fans or users, uh, that's kind of like the, the opposite, you know, you know, of a reason why, you know, Bukla would, would not, for example, Bukla would not necessarily be as handy for feedback patching. Not that you can't do it. But you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the fact that they aren't mixed yeah. sort of is a little bit limiting. Like I would say in the feedback realm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, obviously one could make a justification to uh, explore the world of search. To like, oops, I need. To expand yeah. on once, you know, if you're trying <laughs> I like to. like how we're now once. If you're, if you're trying to earn <laughs> your. Like, one might need this in this case. <laughs> I feel like we, the we sales this, is already coming. I feel like, like when we watched that video, we were both kind of like, search. Huh. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and you know, we're all related. It's all relationships. I mean, you know, Sabotnik was doing silver apples on the moon on Bleecker street in New York. And uh, one of his assistants was Serge. Mm-hmm. And then when he went to Cal arts, he, brought Surge with him and had Surge teach some of the basic um, synthesis courses. And that's when Surge said, well, let's just have the students build modules. So he started designing circuits so that his students could have, you know, a module and do stuff. So that might explain a little bit why they are pretty basic. Um, they He wanted them to be uh, something his students could comprehend and really understand, get to the nuts and bolts of. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah I've never that's... really heard that ask that story of about search. It's, you know, they're all, they're, they're relatives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I see mm-hmm. that. For sure. Well, I definitely knew a little bit like that surge is a West coast you know, since uh, he was in, you know, on, in, uh, on the West Coast when he developed it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it originates. It gets lumped in with that whole. From the West Coast. Idea. Um, I do not know what region yeah. he was living in. Was he living in like the Northern California region? He was at Cal Arts with Morton Sabotnik in Valencia, so- oh, okay. Southern California. Yeah. So and, Southern California. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I mean, the. You know, Mort in the 60s was in San Francisco and San Francisco Tape Music Center. Right. Then went to New York, Silver Apples. Right. Well, you know, until spring and then came back to California to CalArts. Have you seen the Sabotnik documentary? I haven't. Have you? <gasps> no. no. I, I mean, I. Some I, people have, but definitely not here yet. I yeah, I just threw it out there because I know it exists. Yeah, in Berlin, November third. Um, yeah. So no, I. Uh, you know, I, I, like the rest of us, I'm sure we all did the GoFundMe thing. So I'm right. hoping <laughs> we'll get a copy at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I know we were very excited to see that that was happening because there's there's a few projects out there that we're waiting on for years now. 
Yeah. yeah. I did see the first 37 minutes. That's all they had done oh. in June when Mort played his last American uh, concert of um, As I Live and Breathe in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, so, you know, he, he and Lilla Van did the concert and then they aired the first 37 minutes. It looked awful. Ooh. Yeah. That's I, cool. I don't know about I that. I really wanted to attend that concert, Oof. but did not make it. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> like, um, we caught him, what was it, 2014 14. At, at Red Cab yeah. in L.A.? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. wasn't he in Detroit? Uh, if the, he was, uh, we missed it, and that's very sad. Super sad, yeah, because... Yeah, he did, I think it was... He did New York premiere and then I is Detroit or somewhere and then LA and then break until June. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We missed that one. But oh, oh hello. Let's see. It was at um Gray Area in San Francisco, which is this they have like they do surround visual. It's like and so the day after the concert. Uh, he invited me to come to watch the uh, recording session. So he and Lillivan did the whole concert again, but it was all green screen and five camera shoot. And I, it was just like mind boggling. I mean, I couldn't, I, mean, I could see what Lillivan was doing on his monitor, but what they're going to do is take Lillivan and put it in complete surround as and Mort sounds as well. So okay, that'll that's... be probably next year, I'm guessing, at Gray Area. And I think they want to tour it. Oh wow. Wow. That's really amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. the the version that we saw definitely had some visuals, but I've never experienced full surround. That's, yeah. that's wild. Yeah, yeah. man, I couldn't imagine. And Lillivan, like Mort, Lillivan is, has created all of, he, he's, he's creating the material in real time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been doing this for 12 years, and it was just amazing. It's like watching two totally in sync musicians. Yes. A, a visualist and a sonic mm-hmm artist mm-hmm. you could they didn't have to, they were breathing with each other they they could you you could feel that they could feel where they were going oh, wow it was exciting yeah Ooh. <laughs> wow, that's... that's making me think about something else that we have percolating in the back and i'm like wow oh, i thought about like, it too that's really like confirming some things for me that we have working on but wow yeah it just made me excited that was <laughs> that was a whole uh a Sabotnik tangent for us yeah, there. Right. Fitting, of course. I'm wondering if there's any other like questions I had about BB and Forbidden Planet and stuff that I want to make sure that I don't forget. So I'm going to just kind of put that out there to make sure I don't forget to ask anything or bring something up about it. And I've been pondering, but I think it's mostly just like, isn't it amazing how a movie like that can just like, turn you on to so many things oh well, absolutely not and you know musically and visually i mean it 
it sort of set the mold for everything that came after. Right. You know? I mean, you could, there's, you, you see it in Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the same, you know, uh, gestures or memes or. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, like you were saying, Jacqueline, it, I, it's too bad it that sonically it ended film scoring, full electronic music film scoring ended in 1956 mm-hmm. instead of, you know, because uh, that was. Yeah. yeah. And it's like once you've heard that, it's kind of hard to hear an orchestra again. It's something that um, <laughs> comes up, like, because we watch uh, sci fi movies on Saturdays in our twitch stream and you know people vote on them so like sometimes it's a 50s sometimes it's a 70s you know there's a wide range and a lot of them will have an electronic score but that's because of forbidden planet i think but like the ones that don't that are around that same time they just like fall flat in a way because you've heard what it could be so yeah i totally agree with you but i do think so there was like this kind of blackout period where there was no electronic music anymore and then all of a sudden it was like all you heard yeah right yep 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 i wonder when that i haven't tracked that trajectory specifically but i wonder is there a movie or a moment you can think of in like the 60s or 70s when that like shift when that happened i'm trying to think if i can grab at that yeah there's certainly a but i can't pull it up. i'm thinking like it's bringing me to like john carpenter and but that's like a lot later than what i would have yeah tried to reach for yeah but i know that he was really inspired by some of these things and was doing his own scores early on with synthesizers but it's also part of like the proliferation of synths in the 70s like the late 70s and 80s right so it becomes more oh we can use synths to do kind of whatever versus this place where it originated with bb and louis which was a sort of a sci-fi thing in itself yeah 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 Right. It it is a sci-fi thing, and they are discovering the music of the circuits rather than playing stuff that has been designed for people to make electronic sounds. It's rather than yeah, they are. they are in with the sound mm-hmm. and the genesis of the sound. They are working hands-on in the material rather than um, stock sounds that you can get on a, you know, synthesizer or thing, which was what it became in the eighties. It's like, yeah, and yeah, I love that. You know, I just press a button, I have a new sound, press a button, have a new sound, press a button, have a new sound. And and then it, you know, went into sample libraries. And I, I you know, working in theater, I, I used all of these because I had to produce stuff fast. And, you know, yeah. you know going through sample libraries, go like, not, like, like, maybe, not, okay, use. Um, <laughs> that's different than... Oh, what's this do? And oh, that reminds me of the id. Let's <laughs> go there. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting too because there's that point that they weren't actually hired to create the score. Mm. 
it was just to do sound effects, but that they, it's a good point. They like won everybody over so much that they got to do the whole thing. Right. And then the musician, uh, union and producers said you can't have composition credit. So it's electronic tonality by BB oh. and Louis Barron because, and that way they didn't have, they didn't get royalties, I don't think. Right. They weren't eligible for the, the Oscar either. It's one of the big electronic musician injustices. <laughs> Legendarily. Uh, but it's like the heart of the whole uh, argument is right there. Mm-hmm. Like, what is music? Whew. Apparently yeah, it's, yeah a it's a big one. It's a big one. I know, right? That's just, I'll just leave that there. <laughs> We'll leave that for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, tune in. We're going to discover music. We'll let you know what we figure out. No, no thanks, man. That's I going. Mean, that's like taking the Bill and Ted journey. Like, I mean, because there's there's <laughs> a enough, little too far back. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> there's enough argument of Eurorack versus Bootloot going on. I can't imagine zooming out that far. You know. <laughs> There's, there's plenty of micro arguments to be had to keep us busy for a lifetime. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to say. How much do you know about, like, I'm curious, because we talked a lot about them building the circuits and the circuits for the generation of the sound and all, all of this fun stuff, but they were also turning that tape recorder on and then further manipulating, I would imagine, you know, music concrete style. Music concrete style and bouncing. Yeah. Gosh, that is so time-consuming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was doing that back in the day, in the 70s at the, when I, you know, we had three tape decks and we didn't have a multi-track deck. So we would take two decks, they were stereo, so we could, I would record one track left channel and something different on right channel, same with the other mm-hmm. two. And then my friend and I, would, oh, and we would have a tape loop going to, and then we'd turn the, the deck we're going to mix down to, and so tape loops are going, we press these decks and uh, hope they're all in sync, and sometimes they're not, so you start all over again, yeah. and then you, you bounce down to that, and then you take that, and you, know, you keep, of course, noise thresholds going up, so you're always yeah. having to... Mm-hmm. Be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Fun, fun times, actually. I know, yeah. right? Oh, we man. think so, obviously. Well, I'm talking to the preaching <laughs> choir here. It's it's very rewarding, you know. Like, yeah. it, it's just there's no, it's, there's it's no it's part of it fun. that's not fun, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's just pure fun. Mm-hmm. I would say, like you know, that's that's really the benefit. Just chasing you know? that noise floor. Analog, yeah, you're chasing that noise floor, and you know, I, I my suggestion is use it to your benefit. Like, <laughs> That's true. Feed it back on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, I remember we would, you know, hand flange stuff. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, all sorts of fun tricks that um, you can't really do. You can do it on a com- you can emulate it on a computer, but there's nothing like feeling the tension on the tape and feeling the tension on the reel and knowing your motor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the sound. I mean, like uh, there's no flanger digital alive that 
sounds like tape flange when you really get it right and you get that deep like you know really popular in the 70s through like whole like mid sections of the song you know like when you get that kind of a flange there's nothing that sounds like that like you can't make a flanger pedal sound like that (laughs) (laughs) agreement agreement (laughs) we have a lot of love for the tape and i know people say like oh but if you had lived through that time you wouldn't feel that way so it's lovely to hear that that's not the case. I haven't found that to be the case. I, I actually you know, regretted it. And I have the uh, calluses still from slicing tape for years. <laughs> yes, that comes up a lot too. People are like, you should see my, my calluses from slicing. Oh yeah, that just, it just, it always, there's very like visceral things about tape too. Cause like when you were talking about that, it just makes me think about um, like Delia Derbyshire talking about filling the hallways of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, trying to line up all her splices. And they were just there all, again, so time consuming. They'd be there. It was like they were working on deadlines for something actually important, you know? <laughs> and, and they would be like up all night and like spreading it all out. And like you said, they would get it all lined up. They'd then, you know, put that together, make that the final master or whatever, and then find out one piece was like flipped and have to do it all again but like always so much joy right like it's there's just something so special about that process i think because you can't see the waveform right that's my theory yeah yeah i like that yeah and even having to go back and change stuff you know um it's not wasted time it's not lost time it's generating whatever is to come from that. Yeah. You're, you're, you're heading towards critical mass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oof. It's all accumulating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you finish the project, then you start over. <laughs> and then your brain gets to go, oh, yay, more, more, more. Like we were talking about before. Gosh, it's so fun to always like come back to the, the things that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a lot. For me, I feel like we covered so much ground about all these different threads, right? There is something about those those 50s tubes that tie me into why we like Lukla and then like all of these other threads of the actual people who were all just intermingling and creating all this magic for us to, you know, still be playing with today. I think that's pretty cool that like, a lot of them are not with us anymore. Yeah, yeah. But like their ideas are alive and well. And you mentioned tubes <laughs> and bukla in the same <laughs> sentence. I did. So you know what a vactral is? It's a light, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, it's not unlike the light of a tube, but you know, so I mean, the transistor and that stuff became that, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the randomness, you know, yeah. which was such a big part of Louis and Beattie's process, you know, that's, um, you know, one of the shining stars of the Bukla world. Yeah. Yeah. As we've all talked about many times. <laughs> and see other podcast episodes about this. <laughs> see Tabasco sauce on eggs. <laughs> I love that. I honestly love that though. Like I, I love Tabasco on my yeah, eggs. Yeah, you, you do bring that. So up it makes me feel like you know we're we're like brothers of the Tabasco. <laughs> <laughs>
You got it. <laughs> well, that was heartwarming because <laughs> I know how much that means to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I want to just thank you for, you know, sharing your time and all of these wonderful stories with us for our, you know, furtherance of our archive about cosmic tape music. Totally my pleasure. I'm honored that you asked and, and great to see you both. Yeah, one of these days we'll all have to see each other again in person. Oh, yes. How many years ago that was. I know, right? Yeah. Time is really uh, whirring by for me. Hey, again, thank you so much, both of you. Yes, Absolutely. thank you too. It was and, very um, good to you know actually see you and get to have a conversation. Happy holidays. <laughs> thank I'm you. not gonna I'm not gonna say it's, it's like, too early. It's, it's really we're it's, really it's we're really point. edging up to it. So <laughs> I'm gonna say happy we're holidays. Always, Keep the tape decks rolling. Yes. Love it. We'll see you around. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for checking out another episode of our podcast. Before you tune out, please listen to a selection of music from our Cosmic Tape Music Club members. Check the show notes for artist information.
Everywhere has a very, 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 very